0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 19, 2007. I'm Caleb Brown. Former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan has some harsh words for the modern Republican Party and President Bush in his new book, and he chides himself a bit for failing to see problems in portions of the market for home loans. Stephen Slavinsky, the Director of Budget Studies for the Cato Institute, says Greenspan offers an analysis that should by now be well known. Slavinsky is author of the book *Buck Wild: How Republicans Broke the Bank, and became the party of big government. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal, Alan Greenspan says, I was brought up in the Republican Party of Barry Goldwater. He was for fiscal restraint and for deregulation and for open markets and for trade. Social issues were not a critical factor. The Republican Party, which ruled the House, the Senate, and the presidency, I no longer recognize. It's fundamentally been focusing on how to maintain power, and my
1: question is, for what purpose? I think Dr. Greenspan's absolutely right in that. I think lots of people who were supporters of Ronald Reagan grew up in the Goldwater mold, the idea that government shouldn't be doing as many things as it currently does, the idea that government should stay out of your wallet as well as your bedroom. Uh, and I think it's uh, been a sign of the times that Republican Party has been taken over by a more social conservative element, uh, more concerned about moral issues and things of that sort, and trying to intrude government into those specific spheres. And so I think it's not surprising that uh, Mr. Greenspan is mimicking, or I should say uh, putting forward a view that a lot of Republicans, I would argue, uh, are, are, are taking, and that is that the current Republican Party doesn't actually represent the views they find most important.
0: One thing that Dr. Greenspan says in his book was that fiscal discipline really went out the window when Congress allowed the Budget Enforcement Act of 1990, the provisions of that to expire.
1: There are two provisions that Greenspan is referring to when he talks about the Budget Enforcement Act. The one is statutory caps on what they call discretionary spending. That's the spending that Congress allocates and appropriates, as they say, every year. The second is these PAYGO provisions, meaning you pay as you go. If you're going to increase spending in one area of the budget, you have to decrease spending in another area or raise taxes to cover those costs. Uh, Those two provisions uh, did lapse after the Budget Enforcement Act uh, lapsed itself uh, in the early 90s before Clinton got into office. But I would argue that when you had these provisions in place, and they're actually harkening uh, back to another Budget Enforcement Act in the 1970s, 1974 in particular, uh, these provisions worked for the first few years when they were enacted back in the 70s. When, however, you got to the 1980s and even beyond, into the late 80s and early 90s, you had routine overriding of these rules. So although these rules were in place, they weren't ever influential. They weren't ever effective at keeping government under control because there were much stronger incentives for members of Congress to increase spending above and beyond these statutory caps and to routinely waive these PAYGO provisions. Now, these rules have been put back into place now that the Democrats are back in control of Congress. It remains to be seen whether they're going to be able to keep these rules intact and in place. I would argue that even though you had a semblance of these rules, even during the Republican Congresses of the past six years, you still didn't see that sort of discipline. I think it's because politics have been overwhelming the interest in keeping something institutionally intact like these rules. Mr. Greenspan talks a lot about institutional rules uh, in the book. And in, in, in fact, he's, he's on to something. I think the fact that you have to have some kind of institutional, hard-to-violate rules in place is really the only way we can, we're going to be able to see, I think, uh, some sort of long-term restraining of spending. But those rules are routinely waived by Congress. And so you're, you're in this uh, dilemma where you've got political concerns and interests overriding the institutional problems.
0: Greenspan also says in his book, there is a remedy for legislative excess. It is called a presidential veto. In conversations behind the scenes with senior economic officials, I made no secret of my view that President Bush ought to reject a few bills. It would send a message to Congress that it did not have carte blanche on spending. But the answer I received from a senior White House official was that the president did not want to challenge House Speaker Dennis Hastert.
1: That's exactly what budget watchers were seeing uh, all through the past six years. You basically had a president who was a Republican who didn't want to cross a Congress, which was also controlled by Republicans. And that's the problem when you have what we call united government, when you have both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue being controlled by the same political party. What you're seeing is basically Republicans who are unwilling to take a swing at big government because then they might – be in fear of hitting their own guys. So basically, they were in control of Leviathan, and they didn't want to do anything to strip it back or scale back its powers and its scope or even its size. And so what you tended to see was this environment where you had Republicans, instead of checking the White House, as they might do if, let's say, a Democrat were in, co- in, in control, like during the Clinton years, they instead were egging each other on. You routinely would see budgets coming from the, the White House down to Congress, where instead of trying to strip away spending the way they did during the Clinton years, you had a Republican Congress adding to what the president was proposing, and then sending it back to his desk, at which point he would sign it because, well, it was a Republican bill. Uh, I think you're starting to see now uh, an environment where it was more healthy, a, a divided government environment where you have a Democratic Congress, and now you have the White House threatening vetoes. I think this shows that uh, George Bush dislikes Democrats more than he likes big government, because if he really just liked big government, he'd sign these bills. But the fact that they're Democratic budgets, the fact that they're Democratic budget bloats, he doesn't like that. And so he's going to go veto that. And so I think we're going to be entering a period where we're going to see uh, lower than average growth rates, at least when compared uh, to the past six years. If you look at the actual growth rates in government spending uh, during the first six years of the Bush presidency, you're at about 7% average annual growth. This is really remarkable. In fact, during the 1990s, you only saw about 3 or 4% average annual growth uh, as a result of divided government. Now I think you're going to see a much smaller growth rate. In fact, if you look at the product of divided government just in this past uh, eight-month period, once Democrats got into Congress back in January, they saw there was still this unwritten budget that was left over as unfinished business when the Republicans vacated the leadership offices uh, back in January. And they just didn't want to have to worry about uh, fighting a presidential veto over a big bloated budget. So as a result, they put together what they call a continuing resolution. It was basically an autopilot budget. Basically said, we're going to keep spending at about the inflation rate. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. As a result, current fiscal year spending for fiscal 2007, the growth rate is going to be less than half of what we saw in the past six years. And so this is, I think, a good example of how gridlock or divided government can give you outcomes that restrain the growth of government spending.
0: Alan Greenspan's book comes out at a time when we are seeing uh, essentially the collapse of a portion of the mortgage market in the United States. And there are arguments back and forth about what kind of larger impact that's going to have. But he chides himself a little bit for not having seen that coming.
1: Well, I think that's probably the economist in him, because economists, especially if you're a central banker, you want to be able to say you were able to predict things accurately. I think, though, if you look at what Alan Greenspan did and what he talks about in his book, and that is he was really reacting in the way a central banker should, which is making sure he was worried about only liquidity, only a solid dollar. What we're seeing now, I think, can be rightly seen as an adjustment in the mortgage market. I mean, the subprime mortgages really are accounting for a very small portion of the overall mortgages granted over the past few years. And then on top of that, the failures in these mortgage markets are coming in high-profile areas, hedge funds, Uh, and in various other sorts of more market-sensitive areas. It doesn't mean, however, that the fundamentals of the economy are any less solid. In fact, the fundamentals are really quite strong. And so the question is, what should the government be doing? In Alan Greenspan's case, he was doing what he should have been doing, which is as the central banker, making sure the dollar was solid, the dollar was strong, that inflation was under control. And that's really what he was doing. And in some ways, this is a response to uh, a growth of an economy. You tend to see overinvestment in some areas, and then you see adjustments after the fact. The question is... uh, Should the federal government be in the business of subsidizing failed investments? I don't think so, and and neither does Alan Greenspan. And I think the reason that uh, the press has been so eager to jump on him is because he's a policymaker who says, you know, the federal government shouldn't be in the business of subsidizing Uh, bad investments, because you'll get more of that. And by saying that, he's opening himself up to uh, much larger mainstream media uh, criticism, but I think he's generally right on the mark. The truth is, the only thing that can really uh, fix the the mortgage market crisis is the mortgage mortgage market itself. You're going to have to have failed loans and such, which again are a very small portion of the overall pie. But in the end, I think it's all going to work itself out as long as we have fluid capital markets like we do now, and a federal government that isn't eager to create these adverse incentives by subsidizing failed investments. Steve Slavinsky is the Director of Budget Studies for
0: the Cato Institute. He is author of the book Buck Wild, How Republicans Broke the Bank and Became the Party of Big Government. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. Read more on issues related to fiscal restraint at our website, cato.org.